Almost Awakened podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reed. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. Hi, everybody. It's just me, Britt, today. I'm going to do some solo content today. Um, but I'm super excited and super grateful to have this opportunity. Sometimes I just have something on my mind and I'm a pastor without a podium and I just want to be able to express something that I think is helpful for this community that's exploring spirituality post post orthodoxy or often post religion. So today we're going to do a reading of Jonah and the whale. And before you turn this off, I promise that this is different than any other reading that you've heard of on Jonah. Um, sometimes in post-religious or post-secular spaces, we completely throw out the Bible because it's not historical. And I agree. So we're just not we're not going to start there by proving that it's historical. Let's just say that it's not. Let's even say that Jonah wasn't a real person. But what's super helpful for me when um, going back to the Bible is thinking, why did this story last 2000 years? There's something in this story that's uniquely human, right? So many of these stories were meant to be stories about the soul or life, which is a really common way of interpreting some of these um, early stories from the Old Testament and the New Testament too, is really common to interpret the story as something going on just inside your soul. Good guys, bad guys, Pharisees, wilderness, um, we can all look at that inside your own soul. So of course, Christianity decided that the flood and being eaten by whales was and everything else was literally true. And they went all in on that and totally missing the point. But what we're going to do today is explore Jonah and the whale and what this has to do with you and where you are in your spiritual journey right now. Um, especially today, we're going to talk about the existential fears that hold you back. And we're going to talk about the four scariest places in the human brain to go. And these four places often come upon you all at once when you are transitioning from a high demand religion. So before I get too ahead of myself, let's um, let's dive into the story. Let me just pull up the comments here so that I can see if you have questions along the way. Okay. So the story, like so many good stories, start out starts out with a call to action. So Jonah is called to go to Nineveh. And since we are doing the story from the position of one soul, one person, what is Nineveh? Nineveh is the part of you that isn't doing what it's supposed to do. When you ask someone, what stupid thing are you doing right now that isn't making you happy, that you know that you should change, that's Nineveh. It's the part of you that you don't have any control over. It's acting out. Um, and you know that you should probably change it. So Jonah feels called, he gets this call to go to Nineveh, and instead he decides, I'm going to take a cruise, and I'm going to go somewhere else. 
So this is the refusal of the call that Bill and I talked about if you listen to our episode on the hero's journey, which I think has been my favorite episode that we did so far. So he decides to find some way to distract himself from the tension that he's feeling. I don't want to go. I don't want to deal with this. Instead of going to Nineveh, I'm going to go on a cruise. So this doesn't work like many of us who have run from our problems. Our problems find us. So he's on a ship and he's in this ship of really distraction and sleep. And he starts experiencing a tempest. And whenever we have a storm in a story, especially a biblical story, it just really represents the storm and tension within. And so where's Jonah when the storm starts? He is asleep. He is numb. He is downstairs avoiding the reality of the storm. And I think that we all have felt this and that we can all relate to this. Um, If you've ever had like a really hard conversation that you know that you need to have, And instead, because you're feeling icky, and instead you turn on Netflix and grab your M&Ms, which is what I do. This is my go-to. Grab Netflix, get your phone, get your M&Ms, and you just want to kind of put yourself to sleep a little bit because you're feeling a lot of tension about this thing that you're supposed to be doing. That's what Jonah's doing, right? So it doesn't work. The crew becomes afraid. And then finally, the captain which I love that it's the captain. There's some symbolism here with the captain comes down and wakes Jonah up. Why are you sleeping? Get up. We are in this storm. You idiot. You need to do something. So the captain from like a car, from a Jungian perspective, Carl Jungian perspective um, represents this kind of higher sense of self. There's a captain on the ship who's going down to Jonah and saying, wake up. You got to deal with this. So the ego is Jonah trying to sleep through the tension, but the captain, when the shit is hitting the fan, goes down into the ship, wakes up the ego and says, it's time to deal with this or we're going to die here. There's a, there's a storm and you can't avoid this anymore. So Jonah wakes up, walks up to the deck and they start to ask each other questions, which is really interesting. These are questions that you would, you know, really be asking within the various parts of yourself. It's as if the parts of the soul and the captain are trying to figure out how to deal with this storm. So they start by asking, what is your occupation? Where are you from? What kind of person are you? And then finally, Jonah says, I am a Hebrew. Now, in this case, Hebrew means that you're special, right? This is, you've been set aside. You have a special purpose. You have a special calling. This is the part of you that has a higher calling than what you're doing right? This is what it means to be Hebrew in this time, that you've been set apart for something special. So it's the part of you that that is special, that has a purpose above laying down on the couch and watching Netflix. There's something in you that is more than that, right? So it's also the part of you that gets depressed when you know that you should be doing more with your life or you know that you're not living up to your potential. It's the part of you that your family or your dear friends see and love. So at that point, the crew says, why have you done this? You are Hebrew. You are special. What are you doing on this boat? And finally, the men realize it's this Hebrew who's causing the problem on this ship. So finally, Jonah's awake. He's ready to face the storm the storm within. So he says, throw me into the sea, 
quote, for I know that for my sake, this great tempest is upon you. I know that it's my fault. I'm going to jump into the, into the, into the storm. And that is the moment when you walk into the chaos, when you say that this storm is bad enough that I'm willing to walk into the unknown, or this is not going to be good for me. The storm is bad enough jump that jumping into the ocean is just what has to be done here. So Jonah says, take me up and cast me forth into the sea so that the storm will calm down. But this next part is really interesting to me because it's what we do uh, when we're in this situation. The next part of the story, there's resistance. Even though Jonah said, I probably need to jump in there, the crew starts rowing as hard as they can to bring it to land. So they try other options. There has to be another way than jumping in. So they're, um, they're rowing, they're trying to find land, they're trying to not throw Jonah into the sea. This is, this is the resistance we feel when we're having to face the thing that we fear the most. It's their last ditch effort to not jump into the chaos, to try to fix it on the surface, to try to find some other way. It fails. So finally, they take Jonah and they cast him forth into the sea. And this is the part where you feel like you're going to die. I've been in this place many times, more often than I care to admit. And I've also walked into this place with clients and it genuinely feels like you're going to die and that you cannot possibly survive this. This is the place of deep grief, facing the unknown, losing your entire foundation of life and your identity existential angst, deep regret, death, facing the fear that you're most afraid of. Jonah says, the waters compassed me about even to the soul. The depth closed me round about. The weeds were wrapped around my head and my soul fainted within me. This is Jonah saying, I feel like I'm going to die. But then something happens, which is really interesting. Um, and which I've seen over and over as I work with people in this space, is that we realize that we actually don't die. Somehow the pain we feel doesn't kill us, and some grace comes, this time in the form of a great fish to swallow us up into a womb. And so Jonah is in this dark, contained place for three days. And three days is a highly symbolic term in the scriptures. It's mentioned 75 times in the Bible, and it always identifies some important event, um, that there's going to be some big change, some big shift. Saul was blind for three days. Jesus was dead for three days. Moses asked Pharaoh to take his people on a three-day journey in the wilderness. On the third day, Joseph releases his brothers from prison. This number appears over and over to show there's a shift here. There's a really big change happening here. It's all over, right? So especially some kind of new life or new direction happens on the third day is what's really, it's a really common theme in the Old Testament. So Jonah is contained in this kind of womb that keeps him alive in the storm. And in three days, he emerges. The, spit, the fish spits him out onto the land. And we hear the call again, go to Nineveh, get that place in order. It's crazy. And this time Jonah listens. He takes a journey, another three-day journey to be exact. And he walks into the place that he was avoiding. Jonah walks into Nineveh and tells it to get in line. He cries unto the city that it's going to be destroyed if it keeps doing what it's doing. Nineveh believes him, which um, is interesting because in more historical accounts of prophets, they never believed the prophet. 
and they never believe um, they usually stone them or whatnot. Uh, but Nineveh just believes Jonah. Uh, another reason why historians really think that Jonah wasn't a real person. Nineveh just believes Jonah. They were off course. They need to do a course correct. They remove the king. They cover him in sackcloth and ashes, proclaim a fast for everyone. It's almost like everyone was having a frat party and there's a frat king and mom just comes in and just shuts it down. Uh, but this is happening all inside of Jonah. This is the landscape of one soul. So Nineveh cleans up his act and the destruction it was headed for was abated and everybody lives happily ever after more or less. And I love this reading reading of Jonah because it digs into what I do as a spiritual director. I help people find their calling to name their resistance and face their fear because often the thing that's preventing someone from self-actualizing and becoming all that they could be or they know that they want to be is resistance and fear that stands in the way of that. What happens when we, re when we leave religion is that we often face all of our fears at once because religion specifically put things in place to soften our fears. This is why it's called the opiate of the masses. It really calms down our existential fears about being human. So I'm going to pivot here and talk about the four existential fears, because these four storms are the biggest and most terrifying, dark chasms we face as humans. They are the ones that we run from the most often. And over and over in my practice, I jump into the tempest in one of these four places. And this is based off the work of um, Irvin Yalom, a famous existential psychotherapist. So there was this theory in psychotherapy in the 20th century that um, hormonal and chemical imbalances were the cause of depression and anxiety, which we know is just on the uprise, even as it's one of the concerns about, um, about dissolving religion is that we're seeing an increase in depression and anxiety as we have no way to deal with these existential fears. But there's this new movement that said, hey, I don't think that these people are chemically imbalanced. They seem to be just grappling with deep issues of what it means to be human. So Irvin Yalom was one of these psychotherapists, and he de helped develop existential psychotherapy, which is this idea that it's not a chemical imbalance, or at least that's not the cause of people's deep depression. Um, it's it's the result of an individual's inability to reconcile themselves with certain characteristics of the human condition. And that biochemical imbalances are the symptoms and not the cause. And that the cause is some form of deep angst over some of these existential concerns and fears. So if you went through a really traumatic faith crisis, for example, as a lot of you listeners have, and you stopped eating or sleeping or had depression during that time, an existential psychotherapist would say Prozac isn't going to, it's not the cause of what's going on here. It may be a symptom, it may help, but we've got to solve this problem and address the core issue here. So let's talk about the four existential fears. Um, that are really our biggest storms that we face uh, in life. So the first one is death, which is, you might, you know, just really common. We all have some level of death anxiety because death brings you face to face with your own existence. And 
the fear of death plays a major role in our internal experience. It's this dark, unsettling presence at the rim of consciousness. And one of the developmental tasks we learn as children is how to soothe ourselves from death. And religion was created from what we can tell when we became smart enough to know that we were going to die. And it was so absurd that someone who was here yesterday is all of a sudden gone. And anyone who has been in really deep grief knows how it's really hard to be productive during that time. And so from what we can tell, the earliest forms of religion in human history are ones where are, are these are these kinds of forms of afterlife, people being buried with things that they're going to take with you. And it's, it's really just how do we process that someone was here yesterday and is not here today and that it seems totally random who lives and who dies, right? And so religion was made when we became smart enough to know that we were going to die and to help calm the, that fear. It's really deep into our subconscious. And so facing death is the art of learning how to die, which is also the art of learning how to live well. And there's three ways that we genuine that we generally seek immortality in order to combat this in our own minds. So one, some kind of biological immortality through having children. Two, a theological mode of believing in an afterlife or reincarnation. Or three, um, some kind of immortality through the creative mode of living on through our works, right? And religions really encourage all three ways of dealing with death. They really encourage you to have children. They really encourage you to believe in an afterlife and what you need to do to deserve a certain afterlife. And that what you do on earth is et of eternal significance, right? But there's a danger of repressing one's fear of death too much. And there's an argument that we need a little bit of death anxiety to seep into our conscious experience in order to live more fully. So when we face a crisis of accepting death, six things can happen. We rearrange our life's priorities and the trivial things become truly trivial. A sense of liberation, being able to choose the things that we don't want to do or do want to do because we just know we're going to die. An enhanced sense of living in the present, a vivid appreciation for things like the changing seasons, the last Christmas, falling leaves, and so forth. Deeper communication with loved ones than before, you know, facing death. Fewer interpersonal fears, less concern about rejection, greater willingness to take risks, things like that. So when I meet with clients who are mourning for the first time, it's very common for someone to come in and say, I, my dad died 10 years ago. I just went through a faith transition and now I have to actually mourn this person because what religion does is says that pain that you're feeling, we don't have to feel it. We're going to put it on Jesus and you'll see that person again. And we don't have to feel any of these negative feelings. We don't have to face any of this fear. We're just going to say, we'll do the funeral. We sing these songs. We say this story. We imagine them with Jesus and we move on, right? And so people who are facing death really for the first time after a faith transition will find that they never finished mourning that person, right? Or they have to re-mourn that person. But there are benefits behind that door that we avoid. 
So the question for you um, who's listening is consider what tools you were given to deal with death anxiety. Your parents or your culture, or your community gave you some kind of tool that said, hey, we're going to die, but here's some tool how to deal with that. And that tool may be less or more helpful. And so the question is, how do you feel about it now? How do you feel about death now? And how have you faced the idea that we're going to die and we really don't know what happens next? Because processing that fully rather than numbing us, numbing ourselves and not letting us feel that is actually how we overcome our death anxiety. And there's also lots of benefits, like just a really focused life on on the present and the beauty of the moment. So the next concern, the next storm, which is perhaps the least obvious of the four is freedom. And it's usually assumed that freedom is desirable. People, if you want, if you ask people, do you want to be free? Do you want freedom? They'll say yes. But psychologically, we're actually more likely to create a fear of freedom. So freedom in this sense means that you're totally free to be responsible for your own life and you're the author of your own destiny and that no one can tell you how to live your life or what the best path is for you except you. And because of the overwhelming seriousness and importance of this task, people frequently flee from freedom and the responsibility of determining our own path in life. So we like to think that prophets and kings and leaders take power, but the reality is much more complex. The reality is that we freely give them power because it's so much easier to give your moral compass and life to someone who seems trustworthy than it is to accept that you are ultimately responsible for your own happiness and welfare. So, what happens is you can free someone from something like a cult. You can say you're free. You can now you can do anything that you want with your life. But what will happen is the people will be so overwhelmed at the prospect of creating their own life without any guidance, any support, any structure at all, that they'll just take their moral compass and find a new prophet and give it to them, right? And we often see, I see this all the time when people are leaving Mormonism, for example, which is very, you know, follow the prophet based, that after transitioning from Mormonism, there'll be a period where that person is still looking for, I'm looking for a path. I'm looking for the right way. I'm looking for the truth. I'm looking for a spiritual leader that I can follow and go in a different direction. Because it's so scary to actually have to say, the only one who can make decisions about what's right in my life is me. And that that's really scary. So the question here is for you, if this is your fear, is what is scary about having to craft your own life? And what is um, what are ways that you're trying to avoid that by deferring that moral compass to other people, other leaders, um, other systems so that you don't have to make that decision? That's a it's a really scary place to be. So the next fear, existential fear, is loneliness. So this often happens after accepting freedom. So you accept freedom that this is me, this is my one life, I have to figure it out, I have to craft it. And then what happens next is often it seeps in deep loneliness. 
isolation. Because when you're talking about building your own path, it really means that no one else will perf has perfectly paved that path for you and no one else is perfectly coming behind you. And realizing that your way of living is so unique to you that there's no one who's going to be perfectly on that path with you. And that can feel like deep loneliness, especially when you were used to being a path with all these other people who are doing the exact same life. We do these things and on Monday we do this and on Wednesday we do this and on Saturday we do this and on Sunday we do this. It felt like we were all on the same path, but when you accept your uniqueness, it also means that you're accepting loneliness. And so to the extent that one accepts their freedom and that the fact that one is responsible for one's destiny, one is faced with the chilling realization that one is alone. Existential isolation is referring to the unbridgeable gulf between oneself and any other being is another ultimate concern that each individual must come to terms with through the course of their psychological development. So Brene Brown is obviously really great in this space in calling out how we trade belonging, um, how we trade fitting in for belonging. So fitting in is, you know, I fit here and I belong here if I court, contort myself to fit in this space and we all act the way that we all expect everyone to act. But belonging to ourselves before that we belong anywhere else means that you belong everywhere and nowhere nowhere because there's no perfect space for you to exist there's no perfectly shaped britney hartley space for me to just walk into it doesn't exist um, but when you belong to yourself you can always belong to you wherever you go so the feeling of being alone and abandoned by the world can force one to wrestle with the question of the ultimate meaning of life and so this is the last one so Often you deal with death and then you have to take responsibility for your own life and deal with your fear of freedom. You deal with your fear of, of loneliness and how to truly belong to yourself so that you can begin to belong with others. And then the last one is that when you feel that feeling of being alone, it forces you to deal with what is the meaning of life? What is, and so this is our last fear, the fear of meaninglessness. And if I'm talking personally, death, Going through that fear, I went through that really fast. I processed that really fast. I got the benefits of processing that really fast in my journey. Meaninglessness, that storm almost fucking killed me. <laughs> like that was my, this one was mine. This one was my, this one was my space that was really, really difficult. Um, and I had to have a lot of help in this space because this, this one was the one that was hard for me. Um, and the one that I was most afraid of, of the four. So our last fear, the fear of meaninglessness, is what happens when we accept that we will die, realize we have to create our own lives, realize that no one will perfectly understand us, and we start to ask, what is the point of this, and what do I do with my life? And it's really common these days for people to struggle with the question of life's meaning, which is really called the most urgent question of all. And it seems to be that the ultimate meaning of life or finding some grand overarching story is just an illusion. And that the existentialists have found that meaning is only attain attainable at the level of, of the individual. So what that means is if you come from a religion or a certain culture, 
you are likely given a story about what it means to live a good life, what that looks like, the meaning of life. Uh, for me, it was taught that if I do these things and stay on this path and I do these actions and I live this kind of life, I get to go to heaven with my family. That's the story. I was with God before and then Adam and Eve and then I'm here and then da, 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 da. Most religions have some kind of this is where we were. This is where we are. This is where we're going. This is what it means to have meaning in this system, right? So what happens in a faith transition is um, the story breaks down, right? Maybe you have a gay, a gay child and their life doesn't fit into the story and the story crumbles for you or whatever it is. So if the story crumbles, you have to create a new story for your life. And if you don't, this is, this is, this is where we have a lot of scientific evidence to show that if you don't have a story about the meaning of your life, you feel more pain, you're much more likely to commit suicide, you're much more likely to get involved with drugs and alcohol and other numbing behaviors, um, much more likely to have anxiety and depression. You actually in your body feel pain stronger if you don't have a story to fit it in because there's just a lot of suffering there's a lot of suffering in being human. And so if you don't have a story to deal with that, um, and if you lost the story that religion gave you, it's a really, really tough place to be. So ultimate meaning, meaning knowing how the universe began and how it's going to end, it may be really out of our grasp to know. And so the question becomes, accepting that we may not know how the universe began and how it will end, how do I find personal meaning, a story in my life that I believe enough to live that creates meaning out of my existence, that creates meaning out of my suffering? Otherwise, it's really, really hard to combat the suffering that it is to be human. So becoming who you are is not a guarantee. It's a difficult and arduous task requiring self-knowledge, commitment, and courage. And is thus a purpose or meaning worthy and sturdy enough to support one's life. Um, creating a meaning to your life, a reason to live, doesn't solve the problem of suffering, the problems of existence, or answer the questions about what ultimate reality is. But we can outgrow that place where those thoughts take our breath away and paralyze us. And you can choose to live a life that you are proud of, whatever that means to you, and in that way, you reduce your own suffering and the suffering of the world because you create a meaning of your existence and you create a reality that is worth being alive for. So for me personally, when I was stuck in this space, when I deconstructed, and this may be true of some of you, some of you did this a lot healthier than I did. When I deconstructed, it was like, religion and then I deconstructed God and then I was doing like deconstructing free will deconstructed my identity like until it was nothing right until there was nothing there I didn't have any beliefs about anything I didn't know what I was I didn't know um, I didn't have any sense that I had free will and I was just really I was really stuck and I felt almost like a I, the dissociation depression was so high that I really felt like I was a video game player and that I just kind of would walk into, I would wake up and just kind of walk into my 
whatever the video game player needed to do that day because everybody else was doing it. And it was very strange. And I just, I got stuck there for quite a while. And for me, one of the ways out was to really grapple with this meaning, with this sense of meaninglessness and to really say, get really honest with myself about what would be a life that I would consider meaningful and valuable enough to live. Not someone, not, not just a player in a game of the universe, right? What would, what kind of existence for me would be worth living? And there was a gap between where I was and where that meaningful life that I thought would be worth living was. And so I had to bridge that gap and make some pretty big changes in my life, scary changes, but it created then a life that was for me then worth living, worth being alive for. Because if you don't have a reason to be alive, I've been in that place. I've been in that place where it just sucks the life out of you because what's the point, right? I've been in that really numbing place. So if you're listening, the, the, the people who have stayed with me on this, on this ramble here, sometimes I'm just a history teacher that needs a podium. Uh, you may find, I think most of us find that when we listen to the story of Jonah, Jonah resisting his call and fearing the storm, there's something like that in our own lives, something that we are resisting because it is scary as F. But rather than think, what is the meaning of my life or why am I not living a life of purpose? It may be more fruitful to ask, what is my fear? What is my resistance? What am I afraid of? And how is it stopping my progress? And whenever I'm listening to a client, they'll be good with this. They'll be good with this. And then they'll say, and I know I, and I know I'm really scared of having to face the idea that I'm going to die or having to mourn that I may not see my son again, or, you know, something like that. And I always know that whatever that place is that they're most afraid of going, that's the place that we need to go. And I try to hold their hand through that process because people did that for me. Because often it's, it's like Aristotle would say that people are like oak trees, that if you don't have, if you don't block the process, a seed, an acorn will become an oak tree. We want to be the best that we can be. We have a vision of what we could be. And we're, we feel guilty when we're not that person, right? We, we already have that vision of side, inside of I could be so much more. Um, and so rather than beat ourselves up that we're not, maybe a better approach is to say, what is the place that I'm afraid to go? What is the place that I, I'd rather turn on my Netflix and my phone because it's too scary to face? What's the truth that you're too afraid to say out loud? That's the place where progress happens. So the place that you fear most is the place you need to go to become whole again. Likely it's one of these four places, especially when you're talking about faith transitions. Um, the fear of death, fear, you know, fearing and grieving those who are gone, the fear of isolation and mourning a community or friends that you've lost. Um, and I think that includes the fear that if I keep going, I'm going to lose everything. I'm going to lose these people in my life. 
the fear of freedom that you are responsible for making your life worth living and that path is not laid out for you and the fear of meaninglessness the fear that nothing that we do inherently matters and how do we deal with that in our lives these are the big four and when you lose religious strongholds against these fears and it feels like you can't go back to the religious answers you kind of drown all at once and so that is why therapists are trying to more deeply understand faith crisis because to someone outside a high demand religion you know they'll try to help you if you come in for therapy and it they didn't therapists didn't understand for a long time that religious trauma had to be its own kind of study under therapy because they didn't realize at first but now we do that these people who were coming in with a faith transition it wasn't just oh i believed in god and now i don't it was I had answers. I had strongholds against all these four fears and now they're gone and I'm drowning. And so all I can do here is say that it is a worthy journey to face it head on and that you will grow to meet the chaos. And I know that because I survived it too. And each time I threw myself into the ocean of chaos, um, I survived, I changed, I grew, something happened, right? And it's become the meaning in my life to help others in the existential crisis places that I remember going through. And it's how I make meaning out of those moments. And you can find your reason to be alive too. So I'm sending you love and support from Boise, Idaho, all the people who made it all the way to the end here. You're probably in the midst of some human struggle and I feel you out here in the wilderness too. I see you and I love your bravery. And I see your camaraderie out here asking and facing the tough questions and concerns that most people numb out and avoid their entire lives. Um, some of it's not, you know, not because it's their fault. You know, we have to have safety and sec security before we can even feel safe enough to face these big things. And a lot of people don't get that privilege. Um, but for those of you who have made it this far in the lecture, you're the people who are trying to face those fears and not go down into the ship and fall asleep through all the ways, religion, Netflix, phones, drugs, whatever, whatever it is that, that people use to just numb themselves out so they don't have to face the realities of life. I see you and I love you and you are so brave for facing the things that most people choose to fall asleep for because it's hard. And the blessing is that on the other side of facing these, facing these fears is a really intentional, purposeful, meaningful, beautiful, spiritual, uniquely you life that only you can create. And when that happens, and when I see someone living that kind of life, it's, it's art. It's beauty. It's beautiful. I just stand there like they're a painting I've never seen before. What a beautiful way to construct a life that that person did. What a beautiful way that that person turned that pain into something meaningful. And I see that in, I see that in so many of you. So love from me, fellow human to you and have a fearless, fearless week. All right. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, 
or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit NoNonsenseSpirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director, Brittany Hartman.